If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. This episode originally aired on our Patreon. We'll be back soon with brand new episodes. Thank you for your understanding. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Y'all, today we're zooming across the map of the U.S. to a little state I've touched down in for probably two hours of my life on my way to Cincinnati, but it's a place I'd actually really like to visit. We like the chicken, we like the derby, and I'm pretty sure we would like this entire state, or most of it at least. We're headed to visit the hometown of our Patreon listener, Jason B. Welcome to Central City, Kentucky. Now, Kentucky isn't the state that borders the most U.S. states. That honor is shared by Tennessee and Missouri, but it's up there. Kentucky borders seven states, including Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Virginia, West Virginia, and Tennessee. In all honesty, I don't know a whole lot about Kentucky. I do have a friend that lives in Lexington, so I know that that's one of the more populated cities. I also know Kentucky is nicknamed the Bluegrass State, not for the music, but for a specific type of grass commonly found in pastures. And speaking of pastures, the only other thing I really know about the state before I researched it is that it's known for breeding thoroughbreds, the type of horse my mom trains and rides. And for those of you who are wondering but can't ask, a thoroughbred is a type of horse developed in England for racing and jumping. It basically means purebred horse. They're valued for their speed, their agility, and their spicy personalities. You'll often find them in horse racing and hunter jumping, but also dressage. And because I can't stop mentioning things some people might not know about, dressage is a type of performance that requires a horse and a rider to do a series of movements, usually in a pattern in an arena. It's pretty challenging and it has lots of rules and regulations, and it takes a lot of control and years of training. In fact, the word dressage is derived from the French verb dressure, which means to train. Ooh. Did you know that? I didn't. Either did I. I looked yeah, it horse up. dancing. Another fun spiral for anyone that wants to learn about things. Looking up how they get the dressage horses to the Olympics. It's fascinating. It really is. I and spiraled this last Olympics. It I was like, grew up wow. with a horse girl as a mother. So I know, <laughs> I know a little bit about spending hours at the barn using my imagination in a sawdust pile. Because Emily's biography. My mother was a horse girl. <laughs> I should. I should do that. That's hilarious. Okay, back to Kentucky. One of the coolest things that I was reading about when researching is that Kentucky is home to the world's longest cave system. This is in Mammoth Cave National Park. I think somebody could probably do an entire podcast series on the topic of the Mammoth Cave National Park. 
and the long-ass cave system. But here are some highlights. There's a cemetery on site that actually has the remains of the very first guides in the area. These are the people that actually mapped the cave system. There are also several people buried there that had tuberculosis because there was a short period of time in the early 1800s where they housed the TB patients in the caves. They thought the temperature and the moisture level was actually going to heal their lungs. Mm, or they just didn't want them around. Or and they're like, I think yeah, so. that's um, actually we heard that that's actually really good. For you. <laughs> it's kind of like leper colonies. <laughs> yeah, I think you might. You be right. You should definitely go be in that cave and like away from everyone. <laughs> And I didn't write this down, but a lot of people think it's haunted in there because of that. Mm. We might have to check it out. Look out, Kentucky. Here we come. The caves have been used for thousands of years. Most agreeing that they have been in use for over 4,000 years, to be a little bit more exact. Inside, explorers have even found Native American mummies and thousands-year-old pictographs. And, of course, helping to make the cave system one of the seven wonders of the U.S., is that there are several rare species of animals living inside, such as the albino shrimp and two endangered species of bats, the Indiana bat and the gray bat. I have to go see these caves soon. In fact, I might go for spring break. We'll see. Just a solo cave dive. I love spelunking. I've never actually gone. I mean, I've been in a cave. I've been in a cave. I've been in a cave. Well, that's, that's spelunking. Oh, I picture it like... The descent. Repelling. Yes. No. That's exactly it. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to see a new race of people in there. Definitely. <laughs> They're all like, we had tuberculosis. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. Is that where that movie idea came from? Google it. <laughs> Just kidding. It does take place in coal country, though, doesn't it? That movie? The Descent? Is it in America? Yeah, they go to America. Yeah, well, America. They have, there's two versions of it. Are they in America in both? Yes, I believe yeah, so. Yeah, the, the only the... difference is the ending uh, yeah. with the versions. Yeah, so <gasps> yeah. maybe it is. Let's look into Ooh. it. It is Halloween time. That's why I'm here. <laughs> the caves are apparently the second biggest tourist destination in the U.S. First, of course, is Niagara Falls. I didn't know that. Of all the places, I've never even heard of this. Yeah, I would. I thought you were going to say Grand Canyon. I forgot about I Niagara know. Falls. Yeah, Grand Canyon. Uh, they get more visitors. Crater Lake. Up here, I couldn't. Crater Lake's probably lower about than that a lot, Grand Canyon. You know. I definitely thought it would be. Wow, that's top. shocking. All right, so Jason has some homework. He is to tell us when the least amount of tourists are in town, so that we can come visit. Sound good? Yes. <laughs> Gmail us. Central City is small, but it's made quite the name for itself. It's easily most famous thanks to the Everly Brothers. The Everly Brothers are an iconic country rock duo, and they just happened to call Central City their hometown. By the time they were teens, the family parted ways with the tiny town to move to Knoxville and eventually Nashville, where they ultimately took their family band to the duo that everyone knows and loves. I don't know if you guys know and love it, but... (laughs) Well, yeah. Everly Brothers? Yeah, I had no idea they were from there either. Little little nugget. Really blown my mind today. I know. It's, I'm just packed full of facts. Packed full of something. Jeopardy, here we come. <laughs> now, you guys know how I get. I really love researching all the non-crime-related things that our Patreon listeners' cities offer, but I'll get back on track. Last year, like many states, Kentucky had one of the highest violent crime rates in their history. In fact, it was the highest since 1995 for homicides and the highest for aggravated assault since 2000. A statistic I found, which was kind of crazy to me, is that two-thirds of all the violent crime victims 
knew their offender. And I don't know why that's so shocking, but it was. I guess we know that. Is that higher than the national average? Because I know that that's. I, I mean, think it's pretty high. The most common. It just you see it in writing, and it's like, oh yeah, that's mm-hmm. depressing. Yeah, that we're so scared of the boogeyman, or but it's uh, you know the people that follow you and you're walking to your car, and it's right. like, well, actually, it's your husband or a coworker yeah. or somebody who can who knows how to take advantage of you. Some cities like Lexington saw record numbers of homicide in 2020, a total of 170 criminal homicides in Lexington, and that's just one city. Compare that to data from 2019, a year prior, Lexington only had 29 homicides and all of Kentucky had 221. So that's an insane climb. I was actually reading about Portland's similar statistics and they are equally shocking and record breaking. And I wonder what that looks like nationwide and and what that combination is between pandemic and job loss. Yeah, that's what I want to know. Is it pandemic related? Like people are all bottled up or is it you know everyone's in these really bad financial situations mm-hmm. i'm sure it's a combination of everything it's really scary but i want to know more about the yeah. why's <clears throat> today's case is actually from 1987 that year had more murders than 2019 280 murders to be exact that number is overall and some of the cities in kentucky rarely see murder Central City, for one, gives you a 1 in 637 chance of being a victim of violent crime. But on average, there isn't a murder, except years like 1987. This town is incredibly small and considered rural, with just under 6,000 residents. And though it's a small city where murder is seldom an issue one needs to worry about, 1987 brought one of the most shocking cases this area has seen. This is the case of Karina Mullen, a 20-year-old woman who was violently murdered and her case went unsolved for nearly two decades. The city was shocked when they found out who killed Karina. On Friday, October 2nd, 1987, a city employee made a call to police to tell them that a 1977 Chevrolet was parked oddly behind the Central City Street Department garage. As he inspected it more closely, he realized the trunk was dripping with blood. The first officer to arrive on scene was Billy F. Fields. He opened the trunk to discover the body of a naked woman curled into the fetal position and wrapped in a blanket. While the woman could not be immediately visually identified due to the sheer amount of blood covering her face and hair, Fields knew her car. It belonged to 20-year-old Karina Mullen, a single mother from Central City who had been working in the police department doing light cleaning and clerical work as part of her community service requirement for a fine that she had recently incurred. Karina Lynn Mullen, sometimes called Rennie by her friends and family, was raised on a small farm with her parents outside of Central City. In 1987, she decided to move into Central City. She was a young single mother, so she moved in with another young single mother, 21-year-old Angela Smith. It appeared Karina got along well with her roommate, but after living there only six weeks, she was considering moving back in with her parents, and the reason is unknown. On the night of October 1st, she had packed up most of her things to move out. Her daughter Stephanie was already at home with her parents, who expected Karina home later that night. While she didn't come home as expected, they weren't really concerned until the next day when she hadn't arrived. Karina's body was sent to autopsy, and the medical examiner had disturbing information to share. 
He described that Karina had died due to blows to her head and neck with a blunt object, causing multiple fractures, and she ultimately died due to asphyxia. Prior to death, she had been tortured and mutilated. She had been raped and sodomized before being beaten to death and ultimately dying from asphyxiation caused by choking on her own blood. The trauma to her vagina was so severe that the medical examiner wasn't sure if it had been one object, several objects, one man, or several men. She also had several stab wounds, a cut across her throat, and one of her nipples was cut off. There was some information the body offered outside of the signs of torture. There were three hairs found on her back and gravel and dirt on her body as well as in the car. It was also pretty obvious that she was not killed in the trunk of the car, but it had just been used to move her body from one location to another. Swabs were taken from the vehicle and police moved on to investigate her apartment. When they arrived at the apartment, they found that Karina's bedroom had been the location of the crime. Her floor and bed were covered in her blood. Near the bed were a pair of jeans and men's underwear. These were collected as evidence along with the bloody bed coverings. Over 20 pieces of evidence were taken from her room. Investigators moved to question Karina's roommate, Angela. She claimed to have no idea what happened and quickly relayed what happened the night before. The pair had gone out for drinks and then came home and watched a bit of TV. She said that Karina went to bed first and asked her to leave the door unlocked because her boyfriend Jimmy might be coming home later that night. Ashley then went to bed and claims to have not heard anything that happened that night. As the crime was grisly, police pushed for more information. How could she not have heard anything when the bedrooms were only divided by a thin wall? Well, Angela said that they had been drinking heavily. Both girls took a Valium pill while they were out that night, and Angela continued to take painkillers and shots the rest of the night, indicating that she was likely out cold and wouldn't have woken to any noise. As police made their rounds to other apartment tenants, no one else mentioned any surprising noise from the night before. Police now decide to speak to Jimmy Springer, Karina's 19-year-old boyfriend of about six months whom she was waiting for the night before she was found murdered. It didn't take long before they were able to put him behind bars, but not for murder. In October of 1987, 19-year-old Jimmy Springer was arrested on charges of larceny for stealing a computer worth over three grand from his work. While he sat in jail, he made some incriminating comments about Karina, and the guards shared that with investigators. He was eventually charged with the murder of his girlfriend about eight weeks after her body was discovered. In July of 1988, Jimmy's trial for the beating death of Karina ensued. On the stand was Lieutenant Billy Fields, who described that they found her nude body crammed into the trunk of her own car, detailing the horrific, bloody scene to the court. The medical examiner followed, indicating that she had been mutilated and raped. Two other witnesses, Dana Morris and Tracy Vincent, were sitting in the Sears parking lot in Central City at 1.30 a.m. the day her body was discovered. They noted that they saw Karina's car drive by and there was only one person in the car and it was a male. They said that it could have looked like Springer, but they just weren't sure. Springer himself took the stand to testify in his own defense. He told the jury how close he was with Karina and that he was highly disturbed when she was found dead. He vehemently denied taking part in what happened to her. Rather than spend his evening with her the night she died, he claimed to have been in Owensboro with two of his friends. They were drinking beer and smoking pot. He was driven home by one of them around 11 p.m. that night. 
After that, he drove to Karina's home and said that he went through the unlocked front door only to find that her bedroom door was locked. He knocked and knocked, but Karina didn't answer, so he went back to his friends to stay the night. Both friends corroborated the story, saying that he wasn't away from them longer than 20 minutes. Other information that came out in court was that when Springer was initially interviewed by police, they didn't record the conversation or even take notes. It wasn't until over two weeks later that there was a signed statement from him. That's fishy. Is it not? Yeah, that they didn't record anything or document it. Like, here's your number one suspect and you're not documenting it? I mean, it's fishy. It's not surprising, but it's definitely fishy. Prosecution argued that Springer killed Karina in a fit of drunken rage. Defense claimed that he had nothing to do with it and there was not enough proof to convict him of murder, not to mention police mishandled his interview and needed a scapegoat. After a three-day trial and about an hour of jury deliberation, they had their ruling. Jimmy Springer was innocent and cleared of any involvement in the murder of his girlfriend. Once Jimmy was cleared, police returned Karina's car to her parents, and what they learned after looking inside her car was shocking. It was clear it hadn't been investigated properly, and it was likely her entire case wasn't either. They found a bloody knife, complete with human hairs, wedged under the driver's seat. The murder weapon. And this was when? 80... 1980s? 87. And they had the car for a at least a year. How do you not take the seats out and take take it apart and just go, sorry? How indeed, Alicia. How indeed. Karina's family then officially requested the case to be transferred to the state police, which was approved. The knife they found was also sent in for testing with the state. Even after the new evidence was tested, no further movement was made on the case. Despite some local law enforcement who were vocal and wanted this case reopened and led by new investigators and the eventual involvement of the FBI who uncovered more evidence in Karina's car, it would take nearly two decades before a witness would come forward with information to help solve this case. In 2006, a woman called Kentucky State Police to unburden herself from the terrifying memory she had held secret for 19 years. She described that at the age of 15 years old, she was walking home from a friend's house and was nearly to her front doorstep when two men intercepted her. One man was incredibly large and she didn't recognize him. The other was someone everyone in their small town knew, Lieutenant Billy Fields. Without explanation, the two men forced her into the back of the police cruiser and left her home behind. It wasn't long before they stopped at the Hillwood Village Apartments. The trio got out of the car and entered an apartment where four people sat drinking. Karina Mullen, her roommate Angela Smith, Karina's boyfriend Jimmy Springer, and Jimmy's friend Jimmy Kramer. That's not confusing or anything. Yeah. If you guys want to know, the boyfriend is Jimmy with an I-E and the friend is Jimmy with a Y. Well, we'll just call him Kramer. (laughs) Kramer Kramer and Springer. She claimed Karina and Officer Fields began to argue. The teenager believed it had something to do with a pregnancy. The arguing escalated and Fields was pushing Karina into a back bedroom. 
the larger man, Jeffrey Boyd, forced the teen into the room too, and there she stood watching while Fields hit Karina and then raped her. No one helped her. Her roommate sat crying in the other room but didn't attempt to intervene. The larger man raped Karina as well, and then Jimmy, her boyfriend's friend. Before long, the three men demanded that Jimmy, her boyfriend, rape her too. Then Fields pushed the teenage girl, the eyewitness, on top of Karina, and he raped her. He then again turned his attention to Karina, raping her once more while he stabbed and strangled her. The woman explained that she's lived in fear ever since that day. She said that every few years, Billy Fields would call her to intimidate her, reminding her that if she told anyone, he would kill her. She only ever told her mother, and the pair kept it between them the entire time. The case, which was never officially closed, was back at the center of attention. Kentucky State Detective Damon Fleming took the case on and began digging into the woman's claims. Everything seemed to fit. There had been rumors about Billy Fields for years, you know, the kind of a a dirty cop scenario. There were also rumors that he had been having a sexual relationship with Karina prior to her murder. He also happened to have been placed as one of the last people to see her alive, And he was the first officer on site when they discovered her body. All very suspect. Other witnesses were able to corroborate claims that Fields and Karina had a relationship. One of her neighbors, Edna Eves, said that she had seen the pair together on more than one occasion. In addition, Howard Myers, who managed the apartments in 1987, said that he too saw them together several times. On one occasion, Fields even discussed Karina with the site manager, asking to allow her to remain living in the apartment, even though her name wasn't on Angela's lease. Edna Eves also told police a story that gave some validity to another thing the teenage witness had seen on the night Karina was murdered. She said that one day she was in the apartment complex laundry room and Karina came in very upset and crying. She mentioned to Edna that she thought she might be pregnant. On the night of her murder, Edna believed she saw Karina's car in the front of the complex with the trunk backed up to the curb directly in front of the building door. And also nearby in the parking lot was a police cruiser. Like the other witnesses that came forward, Edna kept this information to herself due to fear. Fear that the people sworn to protect the city were actually involved in one of the most heinous crimes it had ever seen. One of the things that makes total sense at this point is why the entire apartment complex said they heard nothing that night. The person going around investigating the case and speaking to the neighbors was Billy Fields. One man job, And he probably didn't say, did you? He probably said, you didn't hear anything the other night. Yes. did you? They eventually said he was threatening, basically telling us what we were supposed to say. The new investigation revolved around Billy Fields, and many concerning things came to light. For one, the new detectives working the case found a police receipt from 1988 that showed Fields had signed out 18 pieces of evidence. This included Karina's rape kit. A lot of the items that had been checked into evidence hadn't ever been tested, and there was evidence that Fields requested the untested items to remain untested and then be returned to him. And no one was like, oh, this officer is right. We shouldn't test this rape kit. 
We don't want to catch the rapist. I don't know. It's like, is he scary and intimidating to everyone? Or was he like kind of charming the people that work there? It's like, you, you don't even, even that, know. It's like, how is oh. how is it so many people? Yeah, it's. Yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> you're getting me upset. Motive is a big cornerstone of this case. It's a pretty clear motive to kill Karina if Fields found out she was pregnant and he didn't want anyone to find out. But there was actually a larger motive at play. Prior to her death, Karina, who, as I mentioned, was working in the police department to pay down her community service, got close with another officer named John Scott. Now, they had known each other previously, but since she was working there every day, they got to be even closer. One day, she confided in him that her boyfriend was part of a drug ring. They also smuggled stolen property across state lines. This was something he was doing regularly with his two friends, Jeffrey Boyd and Dale Duncan. After revealing this information to John, she agreed to file an official police report. Here lies the problem. John Scott, who helped Karina with the report, took it to his boss. Who do you think that was? Hmm. How, how could Billy I ever? Fields. Oh, Billy Fields. Yeah. The new detectives working this cold case uncovered that Billy Fields was the ringleader of this drugs slash smuggling operation. This is the motive for not only him to kill her, but for the others to kill her as well. Other witnesses came forward to help shed light on what happened to Karina. The detective spoke to a man who saw Jeffrey Boyd intimidate Karina the night before her death at a local diner. At the time, he called police to report that he saw Boyd tell Karina, quote, you are going to die tonight while holding a gun at her. But why didn't we know about this sooner? This witness who had very pertinent information to tell about a woman who turned up dead only hours later. Well, Billy Fields took the call from the witness. By the time police, a.k.a. Billy Fields, arrived on site, Boyd's mother had already conveniently showed up to the restaurant to see her son. And so when Fields spoke to Boyd, he had no gun on him. It's like a web. Yeah. And if you aren't already convinced, the day Karina's body was discovered, two separate witnesses saw Boyd and Fields walking along the road where Karina's car was left abandoned. Now that non-corrupt detectives are armed with several witnesses, tons of testimony, and real evidence, they start honing in on their suspects. Billy Fields, Jimmy Kramer, Jimmy Springer, and Angela Smith were all arrested Thursday, November 2nd, 2006. Jeffrey Boyd was arrested the next day on November 3rd. So let's go over the charges. Billy Fields, the head honcho, was charged with first-degree rape, kidnapping and the murder of Karina Mullen. He was also charged with tampering with evidence and a sodomy charge for the eyewitness that came forward. Jimmy Kramer was also charged with first degree rape, kidnapping and the murder of Karina. Jeffrey Boyd, already in jail for other offenses for growing marijuana and having opiates on him, was charged with rape, kidnapping and murder. Angela Smith was charged with perjury and complicity to rape, murder and sodomy. Jimmy Springer couldn't be charged with murder due to double jeopardy, which prohibited the DA from prosecuting for the same charge that he was already acquitted of. So he faced new charges of complicity to rape and sodomy. Within a month, the grand jury indicted all five with their charges. Since this case was huge in their area, the courts decided to set the trial elsewhere so that they could abide by the law, you know, and give everyone a fair trial. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> Just kidding. 
The DA worked out a deal with Angela Smith. If she was willing to be a witness for prosecution against the others, they would reduce her charges and allow her to go to trial separately from them. She complied, so in exchange for her testimony, all charges were dropped with the exception of the perjury charge. This perjury charge was for giving false testimony in Jimmy Springer's murder trial in 1988. After her trial, she was given a five-year suspended sentence, so she didn't do any jail time. I, I think that she was probably intimidated. Well, and that's... and. I want to ask you about that from what you read with the other guys. And it's not to to take away from the seriousness and heinousness of this crime. But, you know, if this guy is an officer of the law and flinging his gun and badge mm -hmm. around and you think I either have to rape this woman or I'm getting shot in the head. Was it that extreme or were these guys like, oh, OK, cool. I guess we can get away with it because the cop is here. That to me would make all the difference in the world as far as what justice would actually look like. Because I, were they victims too or were they just as involved? I get the impression that the first three men were just as involved. Okay. Obviously under their ringleader who intimidated right. everybody. The boyfriend I think was pressured, but since he was in business with them, mm -hmm. it's like it, it's you or me, man. Right. Now Angela, I think I honestly think she was intimidated because she could go to jail easily for all the drugs that she was doing. Right. So they kind of had her by the balls, so to speak. Like, you can't talk or we will and either you also kill just you watch or put what you they away. did to your roommate. We know and what this you can fifteen do. year old mm -hmm. stranger. Did they ever say why they picked that girl up? Like why was she No, and that is the most the craziest thing. So she eventually grows up and becomes a drug informant. Oh, cool. So, I mean, I don't know. What did they do to her? She probably had a rough life after that. Well, but I just mean in general, like, why, no, no idea. why add a witness and why add? I couldn't uh, find anything that about that. just seems so bizarre. Like, hey, let's bring a kid who might run their mouth into I, this situation. I have that at the end of the script in the discussion. Like, I still am baffled by that. I was trying to think of scenarios and I cannot think of one other than they were popped up on drugs yeah. and they're like oh there's somebody we can bring along or she was cute or something yeah. and, and they're like yeah i don't yeah. know it it's really that's unsettling. so weird like angela jimmy springer had his own trial and i'm not quite sure whatever happened with his complicity charges but he was in prison as recently as 2024 methamphetamine charges and he was paroled earlier this year in April 2009, Jimmy Kramer, Jeffrey Boyd, and the ringleader, Billy Fields, went to court. Angela explained how she lied to cover up for these three men. She was able to detail her steps that night prior to the murder, how she and Karina went to the bar with Boyd that night and returned to the apartment together where Karina was later raped and murdered. From there, prosecution star witness, the victimized teen who came forward years later, detailed what happened when she arrived. Defense tried to rip her apart, making her look like an unreliable witness whose own family was involved with Fields and his drug ring. However, her story never wavered. Fields attempted to downplay his involvement with Karina, hide the fact that he tampered with evidence, and ruined a crime scene. One of the things that came out in court that really just pisses me off is the fact that Jimmy Kramer's roommate in jail said that Jimmy had photos of Karina's mutilated body presumably he got them like during the discovery phase of the mm -hmm. trial but he said he acted proud of what he had done to her bragging to his roommate who of course ratted him out it took an entire day for the jury to deliberate but they found all three men guilty of all charges 
Jimmy Kramer received three 20-year sentences to be served consecutively, making it a 60-year sentence with an option for parole. Jeffrey Boyd and Billy Fields each got life in prison with no option for parole. So right there, that kind of indicates to me that maybe Billy and Jeffrey were the the leaders and the Jimmys just kind of fell in line with them. And they still held it for all these years. Like, they're not innocent. That's certainly not what I'm saying in that. But to not give that family closure or answer questions. I cannot believe how many people kept their mouth shut for 20 years, but then how many people didn't, but yet no one did anything about it. Well, he was the end of the line. He was the dead end over and over. Someone would try to do the right thing and make the phone call. It's to him. Someone would try to... You know, say they it's heard almost something. impressive it was to him. how corrupt he was. Yeah. But it's also incredibly scary. Like how many other small towns are like this? It makes me wonder, too, if he left the knife under the seat on purpose. Just as like, like a, yeah, what I, I can do. We didn't search. I don't care. I, I don't left give a it. shit. Yeah. One thing that many cold cases don't have is justice. This case was able to give Claude Mullen, Karina's father, Karina's sister, Heather, and Karina's now adult daughter, Stephanie, just that. Unfortunately, five weeks prior to the arrest, which happened on Karina's mom, Patricia's birthday, she passed away. She never got to see that justice was served. And then Claude also passed away two years after the trial, which is really sad. But at least least, he got some closure. Yeah, Yeah. he got to see. Got some answers. Got to see kind of like people put the kibosh on Mm -hmm. the corruptness. Like that must have been a very scary place to live. So there are a couple of things in this case that bugged me because I couldn't confirm. A couple? (laughs) I know. One was if any of the men other than Fields were working for the police. Like, I got the impression that Jeffrey Boyd did, but but I never read that anywhere. Mm. So I don't know if he was just the ringleader because he was with the police and then he got like drug dealers to help him or what. And it could have just been a small town thing like you hang out at the cop bar so you know everybody. Maybe. The other is that I never found out if Karina was actually pregnant. I feel Mm. like if she was, that would have come out in court and then ultimately the media. So maybe it was just a pregnancy scare, but they might have not even checked. Maybe not. He could have gone in and been like, no, they didn't want an autopsy or something. One funny thing. I have to send some appreciation to the Kentucky officers that did the mug shots. And I'm going to put them on this episode so you can see them. It, the one of, of Jimmy Springer shots, he has like his eyes kind of like half closed, which is kind of funny. But Jimmy Kramer's is a whole other story. So all of the men are against like a white painted brick wall. But Jimmy Kramer is on one of those height measurement things. And it's funny because he's not even 5'3". It's like they were punking him. Like he's They're like, we definitely little... want to show everyone how tiny you are. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and I just I felt like. That was them getting a jab. Yeah, in. he's like, uh, can't can't I have the brick wall? Like, no, no, mm-hmm. you get to show this off. And I don't know why I like laughed when I saw that. Not because I have anything against short people, but it was clear he that was they went the out outlier. Way, yeah. <laughs> but he also maybe not because he was in prison before them. He got arrested while already oh, serving right. time, so maybe he was in a different location. But I just like to think they were poking fun at him. <laughs> so, do you have any thoughts, questions? Oh boy. Number one, police the police, um, especially in sm- rural America. Well, not necessarily. I the an article came out literally just the other day. The cities are worse, and it was NYPD, a whole gaggle of officers, and the headline was "Caught Driving Prostitutes to Their Dates." And everyone's like, if they were black, they would be called pimps. Like, 
Oh my God, they're pimping people. They, the, so the officers were picking up the sex workers and taking them to dates. And what were their, what did they say that was happening? They were protecting them or something? Oh no, I'm sure it was all just part. Oh I mean, I, I, I don't know all the details, but I'm sure the it was audacity. just part of it. And there are so, I mean, there, you have to look at like what police deal with on a daily basis is like mafia level nonsense. So whether it's a gang or organized crime or whatever you want to call it, you're surrounded by drugs, money, power, people, yeah. intimidation, danger, like all these things. It's not su- surprising how easy it is no. to slide into that and go, wait a minute, I know all the drug guys. I can make way more money. Especially when you're making an average salary mm-hmm. and then you see all this drug in the evidence mm-hmm. locker that you could be selling and yeah. becoming rich So off it's of. not surprising, but it's again why we have to go, who's policing the police? Are the police keeping us safe? What what needs to happen to where people right. can't be in these power positions and We need more of like forensic auditors too that are going back through every record. Yeah, and making sure like, that there's no connection between an investigating officer and an investigation. <laughs> I know. This one was mind-boggling how screwed up. And there's a lot and, more detail out there you can read and about. And there are so many cases like this. So many. And it also got me thinking about the one you did not that long ago um, about the family that had been killed. And they kept waiting and waiting. I don't remember how long it took, like 30 years to have someone call in a tip. Mm-hmm. And it's like... Oh, yeah, the elderly couple. Yeah, that's the one. and. It's it's nice to hear not only for the families and stuff, but it's like for us when we cover these old cases or for True Crime Tuesday, I'll look at stuff sometimes and go, do people, is there really an interest here? Is it interesting to them if I'm saying like, hey, can we look out for this person that went missing 25 years ago? And you think no one's going to care and no one's but somebody interested. might. And someone just might know. So, so it's so hopeful hearing yeah. to be like someone might see a reward amount and or, go, you know what? It's worth it. Yeah. Or just, I don't want to carry that anymore. Or I could help that family get close. Like, and in so this so woman's nice case, she was seeing that he left the force and now there were new management and mm-hmm. it was an opportunity to maybe see a whole new reign of police. Mm-hmm. But no, that, that brings up a good point. I did a TikTok about a woman who was murdered in the seventies here mm-hmm. in Portland. And somebody commented like, why bother putting this on here? They're, no one on here knows her. They're not old enough. And I go, you never know. Yeah. Somebody might go, oh, my mom worked at that same mall. I'm going to show her this And video. I'm sorry, who cares if someone on TikTok knows her? Maybe someone on TikTok shares, shares it, it. And then someone sees it and someone goes, that was my but neighbor. That, the other like, thing, it's not just young people on TikTok. A ton yeah. of my followers are older than me. Yeah. Like it. it it's kind of silly that somebody would say that. But I'm like, whatever. Comment away. Yeah. It just gets more well, views. It's, just, it's like... um. It doesn't matter if you know the person because it's not about you. It's exactly. about the family. It's about keeping the name out there, making sure it's shared and making sure they're not forgotten. Because, yeah. you know, we do run out of money in the police departments and then cases are so cold and new cases come up. And we've talked to detectives who are like, I have to donate my time yeah. to look at those old ones. So Plus, I'm trying to make up for all the shoddy work my partner has done. Right. I have to overcome everything they're hiding because they saw drugs there and decided to put them in their pocket. And- yeah. I mean, there's so many reasons to do that. And I was like, mm, you little shit, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so it is promising. It's just, um, you know, I don't know what the answer is for making things um more accessible to people or more comfortable for people to call. Like, that's what I love about Crime Stoppers of Oregon. Anonymous online, tip lines. Online and on the phone. I've done it before because I 
saw somebody stab someone. And I was like, if he finds out that I reported this, like he knows who I am, you know? And so Mm -hmm. went on and you could fill out everything and not any piece of personal information. So it's like, if you live somewhere that you're not quite sure, you know, just Google crime tips or something in your city name. If you have any information, it doesn't have to be a murder. It could be, you know, somebody's stuff being stolen or whatever. It's like the cops, you know, sometimes I think about that. There's that woman that's still missing in Portland. And, um, you know, I, I try to think of like, what are they doing right now? What are the families doing? What are the officers doing that someone disappeared off of a street a month ago? Yeah. Now what? I know. It was a car. They're Someone literally got in a waiting car. for a tip of yeah. something, a lead. Yeah, because it's like, what What more can you do? Yeah, you can only retrace the footsteps, try mm-hmm. to find receipts, like who saw her last, are there cameras, but there are dead ends. Yeah. And so, so many often times. we come up with stories that are like, and by the way, this random person, they thought, I love too when people are like, I didn't think it was anything that I saw this jacket on the side of the road. So I didn't say anything, you know, and then it's like, oh, that's oh, actually that's the like clue. the Rena Vert case that yeah. I mentioned. The Adidas jacket hung up and then yep. someone took it home and it was covered in blood. Yeah. So just uh, if you might you think you maybe know anything, it's better to call yeah. and give them the info like, OK, maybe it's a waste of their time for 10 minutes, but maybe it's not. Right. And this is such a promising uh, example of that, of someone just coming to it and then being like, OK, I feel safe. I got to get this out there for them. So so good for her because I'm sure that was still terrifying. What do you do when it's the cops? Ripped to shreds on on the stand, uh, like airing your dirty laundry and you're like, listen, I'm just, I want to get this closed. Yeah. It's taken her life. Like she suffered nearly as much. Oh my God, yeah. To carry that for so long? And then never knowing when this police officer is going to show up on your your doorstep. That would be so scary. I mean like, and we've talked about it a little, how I, I uh, sent in an investigation for the police after an incident. And it's like in my brain, I wonder like, okay, does that go in my file? So if I get pulled over, it pops up and they're going to be like mad about it. You know, I'm sure that's not the case at all. But it's like going you're you're it's so ingrained to be like that is the authority and Mm -hmm. that is the end all be all. And they have more allowances than you. So like that is I that's like the net to me where it's like, where do you go? Yeah. <laughs> Who do you turn to? How how would you ever feel safe? Um, I'm sure she felt very alone. Yeah, because you would have to think that he's in with everybody. Yeah. So like every cop you saw, you would be you like. You can't trust anyone. Yeah, that would be so That's scary. why she kept her mouth shut. Yeah. Until he was out, out Totally of understandably. Mm-hmm. Oof, yeah. That's scary. a frustrating one. I know. Ah, I had to share it with you guys. <laughs> but at least there were answers. And That's close. They, they figured it out. Mm-hmm. Got the right guys. in the seventh grade and we would hang out on our off period in the library Boy, where the hell is this going he used to draw pictures of like of like war like he had ptsd from his grandpa or something <laughs> like he was obsessed with it 
How's he doing? Ah, uh, he became a sheriff. Oh, yep. Yep. Eugene. Good. Eugene. Things that are Patreons. Oh my God. It's like the hardest sentence I ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and though it's a small city where murder is seldom an issue, when, whoop, and though it's a salt. This is the hardest sentence you've ever written. It is. <laughs> it just took first place. <laughs> no, I'm just going a mile a minute because I had some caffeine. No, oh, that's right. <laughs> it wasn't until two weeks later that they were that he uh, uh, spooky. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my boss. <laughs> <laughs>